Welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. It's Liz Kelly. This week, we launched a new show on the network called the Ringer Fantasy Football Show. Coming from the guys who brought you the Fantasy Football Podcast, Danny Heifetz, Danny Kelly, and Craig Korlbeck will guide you through the fantasy football season, providing analysis on big picture conversations like weekly matchups, trades, and daily fantasy. The show will run every Monday and Wednesday throughout the rest of the summer, and we'll be helping you through the regular season as well. So follow and listen to the first episode of the Ringer Fantasy Football Podcast, out now for free on Spotify. It's the Ringer NFL Show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network. I am Kevin Clark. Good show today. Danny Kelly will be joining us to talk fantasy and what we can learn about the 2020 NFL season through that lens. Aaron Schatz, Football Outsiders, will teach us about the things we need to know about the 2020 season. And Craig Horlbeck, our producer, will also be, he'll be a player coach today. He'll, he'll hop on with Danny, and we'll talk about fantasy football as well for that segment. That's all going to be really fun. I want to start out, first of all, catching you up on what's going on with football. And what's going on with football, in short, is everything. So Tom Brady tweets out there more questions and answers in a, in a support of his union. Um, tweeted, that, tweeted that out on Wednesday. Um, there's a lot to hammer out. Uh, Chris Mortensen said that the NFLPA and the NFL continue the negotiations. The issues that remain are obviously the revenue shortfall, how the cap will be addressed, and then players opting out, which apparently, according to Mortensen, that is progressing. But again, rookies are reporting now, and there seems to not be a lot of information. Uh, a coach uh, told Mike Florio, quote, someone tell me what we're doing as far as what camp is going to look like. So that's where we're at right now. I will say this. So generally, the sport is going to change. It's going to change beyond ways we're thinking about right now. And I'm going to get to that in a second. I will say this isn't easy for any league. I mean, baseball, they don't even know how many playoff teams there are going to be. And opening day is Thursday. Like that, that seems like poor planning. Baseball, now the Toronto Blue Jays have been denied access to playing by two governments, the Canadian government and now the Pittsburgh government, the local government, have said, you can't play here. So the Blue Jays don't even have a home, okay? College football seems to be as rudderless as ever. Mark Emmert makes Gary Bettman look like Winston Churchill. Uh, it's just, it's not an easy time for anybody. The NFL has been okay in some areas, but again, as Tom Brady said, more questions and answers as camp for veterans is around the corner couple of things to unpack here. Number one, so Mark Maskey, uh, Washington Post, does a great job. He said in his story on Thursday, basically, that any notion that the season is in danger because of the economic talks is, quote, way too speculative. That was from a league source and that one NFLPA source called it clickbait. So I don't think that these economic negotiations are going to get in the way of football being played. I think there's far too much at stake for both sides. Mark Maskey says there's no clear answer on whether or not July 28th when camps start or September 10th is the deadline for these economic issues to be resolved, but obviously they have to be resolved. I think that the big issue here, the biggest issue, and I remember something someone told me really early on when I started covering this league which is the NFL's biggest priority in every situation is, does this affect our revenue? And, and, and that's not unique to, to the NFL. That's every single business on planet Earth. And if it's not affecting their revenue, they don't really care. I mean, this is, 
this is this has shown itself in labor negotiations before where NFL owners will give up practice time and coaches will go crazy and the owners don't actually care because they're fine with giving that so that they get a little better financial situation. This happens all the time. These labor negotiations happened last time. A couple of the gives on competitive issues that coaches hate or GMs hate or whatever. The owners are fine giving that stuff up because, I mean, Tom Pellicero said this on the podcast last week, cash rules everything in, in football and in society. So what do we have? We have a 50 to $70 million potentially cap shortfall per team next year. That will change the sport. And how that gets resolved will change the sport because it's going to change the sport regardless. The owners want to recoup their losses. Now, total, it's about $2 billion in the player side from the COVID season because of the lost revenue. $2 billion this year will be lost by the players. Okay, This is part of the revenue sharing agreement with the owners. And the owners want that money back immediately. The players want to smooth that out to, to prevent a financial ice age. Okay, So if you start to look at what that would look like next year, if there really is a 50 to $70 million cap shortfall, it would be nothing short of apocalyptic for NFL rosters. All the things that we think that we value and all the teams we think have stability would be completely wrecked by that. Jason Fitzgerald over the cap had an essay on his website today, Thursday, to talk about just what the sort of the fallout could be, especially from a shortened season. But one of the points he makes is that the players are not obligated to take a pay cut or to say, hey, owners, you can, you can recoup your losses right away. But what happens if owners and GMs start gutting the rosters preemptively? Uh, players with guarantees are safe. Rookies are safe is the point he makes, but others won't be. Mid-tier veterans, which by the way, most of the good teams, whether that's the Patriots, the Ravens, the Chiefs, they, they've built a cornerstone of their franchise on getting value veterans. Those guys might have to go because they're making five, six, seven, eight, nine million dollars. And that it's basically going to be the literal, you know, fantasy football term, because this is a fantasy football episode a little bit later. It's literally stars and scrubs. It would literally be the quarterback, maybe one other star, and then rookies. It would be a disaster for players. But it would also change the sport if there was cap smoothing and we didn't have the rising cap. And what I mean by that is that there were so many deals that have been done over the past three, four years that have been predicated on the cap rising at least $10 million every year and then TV deals kicking in and the revenue going up and up and up. The cap has risen astronomically since 2013, and that was supposed to happen pretty much forever. And now we just don't know what that will look like. And so from a team-building standpoint, from a coaching standpoint, from a player standpoint, no one knows what the future is going to hold, except that the sport of football is going to change. And, and I'm, this is on the field this year. I mean, if, there's only, if they don't get in pads until late August, which is apparently the plan right now, the season will look tangibly different. This is something that happened. You know, there was a huge offensive explosion in 2011, and people chalked that up in some regards to the fact that they basically didn't practice that year 
um, because there were no OTAs. And then there were, once they did start to practice, they had the limited restrictions from the old CBA. And so it wasn't really a full practice season, right? When things like that happen, weird things happen on the field. That's going to happen this year, no matter what. You're going to have players who opt out. You're going to have players who unfortunately uh, get sick from the virus. That's just going to happen. Um, and I talked to NFL people the last couple of weeks, and they've said that you know they're expecting just how other leagues have gone. They're expecting the number of positives to be in the hundreds as the season starts and as the testing protocols come out in in the next couple of weeks because you know if if there's 90 guys on or 80 guys depending on the roster size again that's something that's about to be hashed out 80 or 90 guys on the training camp roster but if you're just looking at a small percentage of league players you're looking at positives in the hundreds um in the next couple of weeks as as we get veterans and, and rookies to report and so everything's going to look different the entire season there will be no preseason testing protocols are put in place there will be daily testing for the first two weeks, but then there's going to be a threshold after that as to whether or not there continues to be daily testing or it goes to every other day. Um, but this is going to be the strangest season you've ever seen, that I've ever seen, that anybody running an NFL team has ever seen. Uh, there's going to be nothing like it, and there's no way to avoid the fact that this will change the sport forever. Sports Illustrated's Albert Breer on July 19th said something that I've been thinking about ever since. He said... There are teams, good, well-run teams, that have advocated for delaying the start of the season. The league office hasn't been receptive, but once the players balked an early camp report date, this issue was going to arise. So he's talking about just all the things that happened in the last few days trying to be resolved. There are good, as he said, good, well-run teams who have advocated for delaying the season, and the league office hasn't even considered it. I'm not smart enough to know who's right on this, but I know that there are people inside the league, I've talked to them, who are very concerned about how this season plays out and what it looks like. I tweeted over the weekend, I said, the NFL was the only league when, when lockdown started that had the luxury of time, and they wasted it. That's what I said in the tweet. I got more reaction to that tweet than from people inside football than I have from really anything I've done in the last, since the season ended, since February, okay? And the thing that surprised me was how varied the reaction was. There were people who were mad at me because they thought that I was overstating it. There were people who thought I was understating it from, from teams or people connected to players or, or agents, whatever. And I think that there are people inside the sport who were concerned and there are people inside the sport who were not concerned. And I think that the lesson in there is that everybody looks at the situation differently because everyone's weighing certain things. But again, the thing we have to remember is that these next couple of weeks will change the sport forever. Not just this year. Even when you think, quote unquote, things return to normal, they will not on the field and off the field because of what happens in these next few weeks. This is a crucial few weeks. The sport will change forever. All right, let's now uh, get to Danny and Craig. All right, Craig Horlbeck, Danny Kelly. Fantasy Bros. They have launched a new podcast. They've got their own feed. How does it feel, boys? It's really, really exciting. Also, Danny Heifetz is on that show as well. Um, yeah, it's it's really fun. We're really excited. We screwed to see up the name goes. though. It should have been called the Fantasy Bros, but we missed that. Well, I mean, it's not too late. <laughs> I guess that's true. We have two I don't shows. Think, who in do the we books. have to ask for that? 
<laughs> I don't know. I'll send an email up the up the river. And up see the, what we up get. the food chain. All right. So <laughs> we've got some name change news. So first of all, Washington is going to be the Washington football team. But Danny season, Kelly does not. Right? Yeah. Danny Kelly okay. doesn't care about that because the Seattle NHL team is called the Kraken. Danny, you have, <laughs> I assume my working theory is you have one hat and that the hat just changes logos whenever you are feeling a certain Pacific Northwest sports team. How quickly are you going to get this Seattle Kraken logo on your hat? Oh, I'm, I looked immediately almost and the, the pro shop was down because there's just mm. this deluge of traffic. That there. seems like bad timing. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, you know, people are excited about this. People are uh, really, really into it. I like the logos. I think it's interesting that they're named the Kraken. Um, I actually said this on Twitter too, but it's, it's basically like if for the Mariners, this is like if the NHL team called themselves the Seahawk murderers or something like right. that. It's the Kraken and the Mariners, it's going to be some drama there, but no one, I don't know if anyone really because cares. Because Kraken kill Mariners? Yeah, the Kraken are, you know, like this mythical enemy of seafarers. I wow. feel like that might happen a lot among among sports teams. Like the like lightning would kill a buccaneer. As would a as as I mean and a, and a devil I mean, lightning would, kills would a lot of them. things. Yeah. Yeah, but specifically people who I mean there was a team seas. named the Bullets and I mean yeah. that's <laughs> I really just take everyone. If we're getting if we're getting into the which Warriors. mascot would win a fight yeah. within cities, there's a couple of Dead know. last is the jazz. Let's not continue analyzing my bad joke. How about that? <laughs> well, that's what we do here. All right. So it is fantasy football season. Would you say when, when are most, what is the most popular day for a draft? Is it like two weeks before the season? It's the weekend before Labor Day. Yeah. Yeah. So we're, we're gearing up. Everyone's getting excited. I've seen a lot of good fantasy football content, including on the ringer.com, which launched our fantasy yeah. guide this week, which I, I implore you to check out. As a huge fantasy football fan myself, I just can't get enough of it. Um, <laughs> all right. So what we're going to do is you guys are going to teach me about the 2020 season through your fantasy research. Um, I just, I think that these two things overlap. I think, you know, when I talk to a lot of, especially the, the number cruncher guys that uh, have moved the analytics movement forward so much in, in football the last couple of years, so much of that has come from fantasy and just the, the need to find an edge. And I think it's an interesting field. So Danny Kelly, teach me. I'm going to start with the Seahawks. I'm going to start with Russell Wilson, who has finished outside the top five in fantasy points per dropback just once in his eight seasons per pro oh football focus. Outside the top three, just twice. In is, other this words, a less, is this a less Russ, uh, let Russ Cook segment that you're I'm you're getting to that, man. Here? I'm getting okay. to it. Um, yeah, so it's basically... So 2019, he was fifth in fantasy points per dropback. 2018, second. 2018. 17 third 2016 he was 16th but he only he played through knee and ankle injuries that season so we're just going to ignore that one 2015 mm-hmm. second 2014 second 2013 third 2012 third so he's absurdly absurdly efficient um in the fantasy realm and, and obviously in in the real world realm in terms of passing and, and just overall efficiency you know throwing the ball down the field so um bottom line is i was going to get to this my hypothesis looking at this data mm-hmm. is Maybe let Russ cook. I don't know. Wow. And then actually, I was talking to Craig about this. He maybe disagrees with this thought. Well, my rebuttal is just that maybe his points per drop back are so high is because they're like one of the most balanced teams in the league. So yeah. when he does pass, it's more rare and they're not prepared. Craig Horlbeck spends a summer producing Pete Carroll's podcast and all of a sudden he, <laughs> he just morphs into Pete Carroll. Oh, man. Running's important, man. You never know when you're going to need it. <laughs> 
that I, I guarantee you right. Pete said that to Craig this summer. He literally did. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, uh, that's amazing. Craig, give me a fact that owns Danny Kelly's. I don't know about that, but I just want to talk about the Ravens a little bit. Very popular team in real and fantasy football. Um, so the Ravens just had a lot of extremes last year. They ran, they ran the most out of any team ever last year. Mm-hmm. And Lamar was the best scoring QB by like a mile. But I just think we should expect a little bit more passing out of Baltimore and maybe less fantasy scoring out of Lamar, which sucks, but I think it's true. The Ravens led the NFL with 58 TDs in 2019. And of the seven teams to do that since 2011, no one beat it the next year. They actually went down by about 10 the year after that. Um, And the Ravens threw it the least and ran it the most in the league. They ran 21% of their plays when trailing, which is crazy. It's like way dead last in the league. Lamar threw 36 touchdowns and had a 9% TD rate while throwing it the least, in, while the Ravens threw it the least in the league. I mean, so it's just not going to happen again. Uh, you'll never have the quarterback throw the most touchdowns on a team that threw the least. Teams so, regress. It's natural. So John Harbaugh comes out this offseason and says he thinks the next step for Lamar Jackson is the deep passing game. Mm-hmm. And that the pressure he puts on defenses and how confused defenses are, they get so thin that you can pass deep on them. And Lamar mm-hmm. obviously has the capability. We saw some of his numbers from the pocket last year. They were extraordinary. He, is a, he, he has the capability to be a very, very, very good passer this year on the deep ball. I think that there's the potential. When we talk about regression, and I think that people see regression as this super negative word and that everyone's saying, oh, they're not that good or whatever. But we just had this debate last year with Mahomes where a lot of the a lot of the analytics guys were saying Mahomes will not throw as many touchdown passes as he did last year. He will regress. And everyone said, well, that's, you know, what are you saying? He throws perfect passes. Well, no, that's just how sort of numbers work. And Patrick Mahomes came back the next year and he did throw less touchdown passes. Part of that was through injury, but injuries are, are part of regression, by the way. And then he was as good or a better quarterback come January. So numbers regression does not mean they're a worse quarterback. In fact, there's the cap- there is every possibility that Lamar Jackson is a better quarterback in 2020. In fact, I would, I would actually bet on that. that mm-hmm. He's a better quarterback in 2020, but his fantasy numbers might not be as good. Am I wrong? Exactly. And quarterbacks in their second year usually take big jumps, and this is technically his second full year. I so. You know, it's they'll regress to being a more balanced team is basically what we're saying. Lamar may score less points, but the team will be more balanced and might be a better team overall, which is why I like guys like Marquise Brown and, and Mark Andrews a lot yes. this year. The, the wide receivers thing is, is huge for me. Go ahead, Danny. Yeah, I was actually just going to say the exact same thing. I mean, if you look at his receiving core last year, it was very, very young. Marquise Brown, you know, he flashed for sure, but he was injured a big part of the year. He was in his rookie season. Um, Craig, that stat about them playing from, you know, the, with the lead, 80% of the time, I think is really intriguing because that just allows them to, you know, that allows them to do whatever they want, really. They can run, they can run the ball all three downs and they'd be fine with that. Um, I do think, yeah, this year, it's odds are they're probably just going to have to pass the ball more. Um, Lamar Jackson averaged 80 rushing yards a game last season. I mean, that's like a top, that's near like the top level for running backs these days. So, well, no, I mean, I, I as we had, we said this a couple episodes ago, that was, I believe, better than Saquon Barkley. Uh, I don't have that in front of me, but yeah, I think that sounds yeah. right. Because who's, who's pretty, he's who's pretty good, by the way. He, yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, I think it's going to be very interesting. And, and, you know, Lamar Jackson is the poster child now for the Konami code, which is the idea that the rushing 
up the, the quarterback rushing is sort of like this cheat code in, in fantasy football because uh, rushing yards are worth more. Uh, or sorry, rushing rushing touchdowns and rushing yards are just worth more than passing yards. Um, mm-hmm. So if they are forced to pass more, even if he puts up better numbers as a passer, he could end up scoring fewer fantasy points. So it's just very intriguing. I, I'm with you, Craig. I think he's probably if you're going to, if you're a betting person, you probably want to bet that he'll regress slightly in the fantasy realm, and he still might be the QB one. But I just say he might not be the like game the the league winning type level quarterback la- that it was last year. You parlay him having a numbers dip with him winning the Super Bowl. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. my take yeah all right danny teach me uh i want to talk about derrick henry who finished second among running backs in fantasy points for snap behind only austin eckler um however he only ranked 18th in snaps 14th in snap rate he actually only was on the field 63 percent of the time which surprised me when i really when i looked at that um now i will say he did actually lead the nfl in rushing attempts um so they were clearly using him a lot but when him and Tannehill were on the field last year, uh, I saw this stat on Twitter. They averaged, let's see here, they averaged 7.4 yards per uh, attempt, uh, sorry, yards per play, which over a full season would be an NFL record. I mean, they were just so, so efficient when they were on the field together. Um, like the Ravens, I think they're probably going to regress from that um, in 2020, but the way that Tannehill opened up the field for him, um, you know, spread defenses out a little bit because he was more dangerous as a passer. All that stuff, I think, really, really benefits um, Derrick Henry. So Derrick Henry is one of those interesting fantasy players because he doesn't really get involved in the passing game, so he's not quite as valuable in PPR leagues, but he's just so good that he might not even need to be, you know, like super, super involved in the passing game and still be a top five running back, if not top three. Craig, the Titans and Derrick Henry. The Titans were just so uber efficient last year that I think Derrick Henry already had his best year. And usually when you draft people, you want guys who had have the potential to exceed their their best. And I don't know if that is really the case with Derrick Henry. And we'll have to see how they um how they handle Darrington Evans, their rookie. And uh, yeah. maybe the lack of training camp will make it so he's not on the field as much. I'm not sure. The one stat I want to bring up with this, I, I mm-hmm. saw this stat yesterday over at NFL.com. Nick Shook wrote about it. And he put together a stat, rushing yards over expectation, which is similar to their completion percentage over expectation stats. Basically, it looks at the blocking, tries to separate the blocking from the running back. Derrick Henry led the NFL with 1.5 rushing yards over expectation, which was easily the best. And one of only 10 running backs who averaged over 0.5 rushing yards over expectation. So he was like in this whole separate tier by himself. And... The thing that I think is interesting about that is he also led that stat in 2018 as well. So it's not necessarily a fluke to me that he was just so much like head and shoulders. Like imagine tackling this guy. <laughs> like just from it's, like it's the most basic want. level. Just imagine tackling Derrick Henry. It's not what you want. Can can either of you make a case or just even just spell out your expectations for the Titans in the AFC South? Oh man. I personally, I, I think they're the favorite in that division, but it is a very... You don't think the Colts are? No, I don't. I, I feel like I put the Titans a little bit above the Colts, but I think they're both good. And then I think the I Jaguars quietly could make some noise. Oh the Texans God. are obviously up there every year. You know, when you have Deshaun Watson, the Texans are always going to be involved. Um, I, think, I, I think it's a very competitive division. And that's yeah. what, I, the, what I wanted to get into, because I think that the Texans is currently constructed 
looked pretty good, even with the strange subtraction of DeAndre Hopkins. I think that that's that's the type of division where I think that in week fourteen we're going to be looking at three potential playoff teams, and I don't I don't know how that shakes out, but it, yeah. it, it, it's a very competitive division. Craig, who do you have in the AFC South? I'm with you. I think it's the Colts. Yeah. All right. Next, Craig Horlbeck. All right. So I want to talk about one thing in fantasy football that a lot of people who just kind of log on on August 15th and draft their team kind of struggle with is recency bias, which is you just kind of go back and look at the year before, and that's how you kind of dictate what you're going to do for your current season. So I wanted to talk, I want to stick in the AFC North and talk about the Steelers, who were clearly one of the worst teams in football <laughs> last year, real football and fantasy football. But I'm expecting a big bounce back in both ways. I mean, they were the worst scoring team last year. They scored 25 touchdowns. The Ravens had 58. They had 25. Them in the Jeez. Jets. Obviously, I mean, it comes as no surprise that it was because of Mason Rudolph and Duck Hodges at quarterback all year. But Pittsburgh's entire philosophy changed as a team last year. Mm -hmm. They slowed the game way down. They tried to play like drag out football, win low scoring games. It kind of reminds me of like what, when I played CYO basketball growing up, my dad would coach and it would be like, if he knew that our team was less talented than the other team, you would just like absolutely run the shot clock out every single time and keep it <laughs> low scoring, drive to the paint, try and get fouled, free throws or easy shots. Like no threes if you can't shoot. Just like really, just hunker down for the winter and like hope for the uh, no wonder. For spring. No wonder you love Pete Carroll, man. I love it. It's <laughs> unbelievable. This is the origin story of why Craig Worldbeck <laughs> earlier today defended the running game. <laughs> but um, yeah, I don't know. I just don't think it, it, everyone had a bad year last year. Juju, James, Connor, and you just can't use last year's results uh, for this year's prediction. Um, Pittsburgh threw yeah. the ball the most in the league in 2018, and they were fourth in plays per game. And James Conner and Juju were incredible. Juju was a top eight receiver along with Antonio Brown. And he's not nearly ranked wide receiver eight right now. So I just think it's kind of a microcosm of what the Steelers could be this year. I mean, the last three years with Ben, they won nine games, 11 games, and 13 games. I saw a video of Big Ben yesterday. He's looking pretty svelte. He's looking ready. Sure. Was he shaved video, that beard. Was the video from 2009? <laughs> I can't Were confirm you watching that. NFL films again? <laughs> My favorite video ever of Ben is when they toss the, those like pads at him as he's throwing. He's just hitting him with his hands. Have you seen that video? <laughs> no. Oh, I, no. No, I haven't. I'm looking for this video right now. I got, I'm just seeing a bunch of, I don't see anything. Was this a deep fake you saw? It might have yeah. been a deep fake. might have been a deep fake, yeah. It was actually Joe Flacco with uh, Big, Ben's, Big Ben's head I on don't, him. Yeah, I don't think there's any video of a healthy Joe Flacco right now. All right. Um, isn't he isn't he like not gonna start the season health? Isn't he gonna play? Isn't he gonna be able to be the backup in like October? Isn't that the Flacco side yes, part? I think so, yeah. Crushing it. Jets crushing it. All right. Danny Kelly, third and final thing you need to talk about to teach people the twenty twenty season through fantasy. Yeah, I want I wanted to talk about the Panthers for a little bit and specifically just it's I think it's in the same vein, Craig, as what you're talking about with the Steelers, is they were so their offensive production was so just held back by Kyle Allen last year. Um that I'm very intrigued to see what happens with Teddy Bridgewater under center and having that new staff in place, how they can kind of put that all together and, and if they're able to explode offensively in the way that I think they might be able to because I think they have a lot of really good talent on that offense. Um, obviously, Christian McCaffrey is going to go off. DJ Moore is one of the top ascending receivers in the NFL, but I also, I keep coming back to this stat because I think it's very fascinating. Curtis Samuel finished ninth among all receivers in total air yards last season, 1,608. 
and 52nd in receiving yards. Uh, there was seven, the top 17 receivers in air yards last year all had over a thousand yards, and Samuel finished like 600 something. So I just think, you know, obviously you have to go through all the targets to kind of see exactly what was going on there. If, if all of those passes are just prayers down the, down the field or whatever, but um, I think Samuel is a lot better than what his stats showed last year. Um, so he's a kind of, to me, that he in particular is interesting, but I think that whole offense has a lot of potential to be a lot better um, than they were last year and, and be more fantasy relevant. I, I'm confused by everything that the Panthers have done this year. And I'm not totally, and I'm not saying it's all bad. I, I think the Matt Rule hire is very good. I think there's a reason they gave him a long-term contract. I, I thought at the beginning, obviously before the Bridgewater signing and all that, that there was a chance that they were going to try to take a step back and make it more of a long-term thing. And right. Obviously, they signed Teddy Bridgewater. Um, it seems like they've got a different plan than maybe I thought they were going to have. Is there any case to be made for the Panthers in general, or is it just just more of a, a, a fantasy they might be better than we think kind of take? Uh, I would say it's the latter. I just... Yeah. So... I think there's a a world in which Teddy Bridgewater is just perfect for, you know, the the Joe Brady offense, like something similar to what we saw at LSU, where they spread the field and and you know get the ball out and attack deep, and <clears throat> for whatever reason, Bridgewater just like takes to that like really really well. There is a world where I could see them being really good offensively. I'm more conservative in in my estimation. I think. Um, I think he'll help Curtis Samuel be a better fantasy player, but I don't know if they're going to necessarily light the world on fire, be good enough offense where, you know, it can kind of like make up for some of the issues that they have on defense. But, um, you know, I'm not totally eliminating it because if we saw the difference between, you know, what Joe Burrow was in 2018 versus 2019, um, that's what kind of intrigues me is like how much that offense can maybe unlock Bridgewater. I'm excited to see Joe Burrow at the NFL level. Uh, Joe Burrow. I mean, I am excited to see Joe Burrow at the NFL level. <laughs> yeah. Joe Brady. Uh, everybody connected with LSU last year, I'm excited to see them at the NFL level. I guess what I'm trying to say. Totally. <laughs> um, David Tepper launched MLS team and called it Charlotte FC this week. So kind of oh, to, nice. to go on the name, the name stuff. Um, yeah, I am more intrigued in theory with the Panthers than I am intrigued with them as like some sort of NFC South contender, especially when you can see that there's three pretty good teams in that division. But I'm just intrigued to see how all the pieces fit, how Matt rule looks at the NFL level, the Brady offense, Teddy Bridgewater is a full-time starter. I'm, I'm in on potentially seeing them as like a, a red zone team. Craig Panthers thoughts. Yeah, I think they'll be really fun. They almost are like a real life fantasy team where they just have a lot of cool tools and you don't know how they're going to work, but it'll be fun to watch. Yeah. Um, all right, Craig, last one. Yeah, the last thing I want to talk about is just kind of the importance and the safety net of a running quarterback. But in both fantasy and real-life football, it's kind of on the rare side to find a true dual-threat quarterback starting in the NFL. But it's not surprising that the ones who do fit the description tend to be among like the fantasy's most productive options. So of the 12 quarterbacks with the most rushing yards last year, nine of them were also in the top 12 in fantasy points, right? Not surprising. But of those nine, six of their teams made the playoffs. Quarterbacks like Josh Allen can put up high-end fantasy numbers without having to be even like a moderately efficient passer. But it just goes to show you that six of those nine teams are in the playoffs. And I just think there might be more of a correlation between fantasy production as a dual quarterback, dual threat quarterback, and real-life production as a dual threat quarterback. Like DK said earlier, in fantasy, every 175 yards in a touchdown throwing is equal to 50 yards in a touchdown rushing. 
But in real football, I, I think the value might be similar just because the extra weapon the defense has to prepare for kind of makes a huge difference. Yeah. It, cha- it changes the entire approach for the defensive side of the ball. I mean, they it, it's it's especially like in the red zone too where you have to worry about the quarterback as a runner. It changes everything you can do. spreads the defense thin. It puts them in it puts a lot of defenders in and the whole uh, the whole heart of the option game is it puts defenders in like an impossible situation where they have to make one decision and and if the quarterback plays it right they're wrong every time you know so it's i think yeah. it's absolutely you know a huge huge advantage for the offense and you know we've been talking about this now it seems like for 10 years it's here to stay yeah i mean i it's basically Josh Allen and the Bills are going to win the super bowl sort of <laughs> yeah that's the take no it, it's interesting cuz when i talk to defensive coordinators or GMs or head coaches or whomever, it's it's funny to me because even though we talk about the positionless defenses and the adaptability and all that stuff, the, the defenses still have not gotten to the point where they can, I mean, we saw this with Lamar last year, where they can reliably have any idea what they're doing against a true dual-threat quarterback. Exactly what you said, Craig. And I think that if, if you can get a team out of their quote-unquote base defense, even though it's increasingly becoming a substitution league, it's not that much of a substitution league. Like, it is... If you can get a team still out of the base defense, as as rare as it is for teams to actually play the, their base defense all the time, but if you can get them out there for an entire game, you have the advantage. And defenses still don't know how to reckon with it. And, you know, I remember talking to uh, the former Bengals offensive line coach who did a lot of study on, on Lamar Jackson. He basically said that they run so few plays, so few actual plays, and like the number of plays that the Ravens run is very few. It's just that nobody can stop it. And also defenses can't even reckon with the fact that they run so few plays because they can't even wrap their minds around it. And so I'm with you. A true dual threat quarterback is a sight to behold. Is Josh Allen, like, is the take you're making here, because I'm not ready to make this take. Are you saying that Josh Allen could contend like realistically in the AFC? Hell yeah. No, so I I love the Bills organization and the defense and 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 the players and all that stuff. I just think that when you're question mark, and I think Josh Allen is okay. I think he's okay. Um, I don't think he's you know a, I don't think he's on ever going to be in the top tier of quarterbacks, but I think he, he's obviously can win you some games. Do it, my my concern is that I'm not putting anybody in the contention tier unless they don't have a question mark at quarterback, and I think Josh Allen has that. Yeah, well, I guess the whole point is that I think people kind of look at a rushing quarterback as like a gimmick a little bit, and they think it's only kind of a a fantasy-relevant skill. But it just goes to show that, you know, two-thirds of the guys who are strong rushing quarterbacks make the playoffs, including Josh Allen last year. I mean, he's essentially Cam Newton with the size of Ben Roethlisberger, and he slings it like Brett Favre, and he's gotten better each year. They have a great O-line, a great defense. I don't know. I think the Bills are a strong chance to win 11, 12 games and and even win the AFC East. Danny Kelly, the Bills. I'm, I'm with you that Josh Allen is the wild card. If he can do that, I'm not 100% confident he can be that level. If he but can it, do that, then the Bills are contenders. They're a Super Bowl I mean, contender, I, I don't, yeah. If Josh Allen takes a huge leap, the Bills are Super Bowl contenders. And I don't think there's a lot of debate about that when you see the rest of their team. And I think Sean McDermott's a very good coach. I think Brandon Bean's a very good general manager. I think they have a good infrastructure. If he takes the leap, but I, I I can't tell if, you know, is this season going to be a bit chaotic in the sense that nobody's practiced, nobody's in pads, nobody at OTAs, and someone like Josh Allen, who's a little more unorthodox, could maybe have better production than, than he would normally have because defenses are a little flat-footed. Yeah, I'm willing to buy that theory I just made up. 
but <laughs> I, I I'm I'm also not going to stake my my claim in that this yeah. year. However, having said that, having said that, if he does do that, the theory I just made up, I'll just keep recirculating. Yeah, I didn't mean for this to be a Josh Allen segment, but I'm happy we're here. Allen thrives in chaos. I could see it. <laughs> Allen thrives in chaos. He's the I mean, little he's, finger of he's football. He's the Joker. He's the Joker. <laughs> yep. Um, all right, guys. This has been very fun. Who's uh real quick, both of you. This was not I didn't ask you to prep for this, but we'll do it right now. What do you what is the player you guys disagree on the most in oh, fantasy value? David, David Johnson. Johnson. <laughs> Explain this. Craig is high on David Johnson. He thinks he's so he's is still, high fits. Yeah. Craig and Danny are both high on David Johnson and they believe that he's gonna be re- returning, I guess, somewhat some, somewhat towards what he was like with the Cardinals in his heyday. I'm very dubious and a little bit nervous about what he can do in that Texans offense. So I'm not going to have any David Johnson in on my fantasy teams and Craig and Danny are going down with the David Johnson ship. Bill O'Brien's job is on the line. Aaron Schatz just logged on to hear David Johnson praise. <laughs> and I think that that's the natural conclusion to this segment. Yes. I'm not sure David Johnson is the best Johnson in his own backfield. Thank you. Perfect. Thank this you. is why we booked him. This is why we booked him, folks. All right. <laughs> Danny Kelly, thank you so much. No problem. Before we move on, let's take a quick break. If you've been dealing with acne, redness, dark spots, or wrinkles, finding treatment that works can be complicated. You need skincare that actually performs, but getting started can be overwhelming. Thankfully, there's a solution. Roman makes it convenient to get customized prescription skincare that really performs. Just grab your phone or computer, complete a free online consultation, and you'll hear back from a U.S. licensed physician within 24 hours. If appropriate, a doctor will prescribe a custom blended treatment based on your skin type and priorities. You'll receive your custom skincare treatment with free two-day shipping. You also get free unlimited follow-ups with your doctor if you need to make a change to your treatment or have any questions. With Roman, there are no commitments and you can cancel anytime. Go to GetRoman.com slash RingerNFL for a free online visit and start your new skincare routine today. That's GetRoman.com slash RingerNFL. Eligibility, requirements, and additional terms apply. Today's show is also brought to you by Manscaped. Listen up, because today we have a new Manscaped product alert. Manscaped just released the Weed Whacker Nose and Ear Hair Trimmer. It's time to step up your game and keep your ear and nose hair trimmed. I think that long nose and ear hair is pretty much universally unpopular, pretty much pulls at 0%. It is painful to pull out and everybody hates it. The Weed Whacker provides proprietary skin safe technology to help prevent nicks, snags, and tugs. It uses a 9,000 RPM motor powered 360 degree rotary dual blade system. It's intelligently countered design enhances the trimming experience and it is waterproof. The Weed Whacker is the only nose hair trimmer on the market with a powerful and rechargeable lithium-ion battery that lasts for up to 90 minutes of use. You'll also get a replacement blade every three months to keep your weed whacking time clean and enjoyable. 79% of partners polled admitted that long nose hair is a major turnoff, so it's time to upgrade your Manscaped routine. It would be incredibly useful to have this. Again, nobody wants long nose and ear hair. It is maybe the most unpopular thing you can possibly have. There is no reason to have it. And this is the thing you need to get rid of it. 
Get 20% off and free shipping with the code KFAN20 at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com and use code KFAN20. Thank you, Manscaped, for keeping our hairs looking nice. All right, Aaron Schatz, Football Outsiders Almanac 2020 is out. It is one of the best guides, and there it's a crowded space now with the, the preseason guides, especially uh, with analytics, but this is among the very best. Uh, Aaron, thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me on. Yes, this is our, I believe, 14th book, so uh, we've been pumping these out. No, 16th book. We've been pumping these out for a long time. <laughs> yeah, so I this is the weirdest season we've ever had. And so this will be the weirdest, I guess you could say way to consume the book is, is we're a couple days out from when veterans supposed to report and we don't know what that looks like. I'm curious before we get into the nitty gritty of, of what you found in your research and what we can glean from it for the 2020 season. When you think about this season and how things are different in every building and all 32 buildings and how the scouting process will differ how everything will essentially change going forward. Will analytics play a bigger role, the same role, a lesser role, because maybe there are, t- there are teams who weren't converts before and they, they now have to, to look at it because, look at these numbers because you know, their, their scouts can't get to Oregon or whatever. What, how, how do you view analytics and their role in this season where everything is different? Well, the problem, I mean, one problem is the scouts can't get to Oregon, but if Oregon's not playing, the players aren't playing in Oregon, right? Like either there's film and stats to discuss about college players or there's not. Um, I don't think, I think what we've seen over the last few years, especially the last couple of years, is definitely movement towards analytics being better accepted in the NFL, in the front offices, by coaching staff even. I don't think that what's going on with COVID-19 is either going to increase that movement or decrease that movement. I think coaches will continue to think like coaches, you know, if they buy the analytics about needing to run more play action, they'll, they'll continue to buy it and they'll run more play action. And if they still believe in establishing the run, they're still going to believe in establishing the run. So I, I don't think COVID-19 is going to play a big role in that. I do think I wouldn't be surprised if, if, uh, if they go you know, the, the people running the front offices go to the analytics people and ask them yeah. if there's no college football season or certain teams don't have college football like FCS teams. Like, is there a way for analytics to overcome that? The problem is, I think analytics are stuck, like I said, in the same place that film study is stuck, which is if they're not playing, there's nothing to study. So uh, whether analytics could, you know, look at junior year stats and FCS and figure out whether guys are translate to the NFL in 2021, I, I have my doubts. Yeah. All right. So let's get to your research over the past year. Is there anything in the book that shocked you when you started to look at the data? Yeah. I'll tell you one that came out of the New Orleans chapter that was kind of mind blowing. In the last three New Orleans playoff losses, Michael Thomas had only three targets on third down, (laughs) caught one of them. For 19 yards. I think that is the best explanation for why Emmanuel Sanders is going to change things for New Orleans is the desperation to have another receiver they could throw to on third down. Like apparently you can't guard Mike, 
but there are apparently times where if you really throw everybody you've got at Mike, you can guard Mike. That's amazing. I'm I'm really intrigued by that. How you know I I've seen some debate on this, and, and maybe this is a broader discussion, but. How valuable is Michael Thomas in, in, in the regular season, just, just with the, the high catch rate and all that stuff? The depth of target is not very high. But when you look at someone who has a historically good catch rate, how valuable is that versus someone who has a lesser catch rate but maybe goes deeper? What, 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 what is the value of Michael Thomas? I think it has a lot of value. I think when you ask which skill set is harder to find, the outside downfield, the Julio Jones skill set is a harder skill set to find. But Michael Thomas is so good at his skill, at what he does well, yeah. that I think it, it makes up some of the, the difference that the, the outside guys may have a more valuable skill set, but the difference between Michael Thomas and uh, an average guy or a replacement guy at his position is larger. Uh, so, I mean, I do think there is a lot of value to Michael Thomas. Uh, and obviously, the Saints offense has been spectacular over the last couple of years with one go-to receiver. Right. So you put the Emmanuel Sanders acquisition as probably among, among the most important of this offseason? Yeah, for I definitely team? think yeah. so. Because, I mean, listen, it's been great for them in the regular season, but that stat suggests that when it came to the, you know, the chips were down, teams found a way to take Thomas out of the game, and now you've got another guy you can go to. Fascinating. All right. What team aren't we talking enough about as contenders based on your projections? Well, there's two that I think are higher in our projections than most people have them. One, people might be talking about some, and that's the Pittsburgh Steelers. I think people understand yeah. how good their defense was last year. I don't expect their defense to be as good this year. They led the league in takeaways per drive, which is definitely one of those stats that regresses pretty heavily. But their offense was so bad last year. All Roethlisberger has to be is average. Like, he doesn't even have to be the Roethlisberger of old. If he's just an average NFL starter, that's a big upgrade for their defense. And they have a pretty easy schedule by our numbers. The other team is the team that has the easiest schedule by our numbers, and that's Indianapolis, which mm. is just an overall well-run, good, yep. not great, but good all-around team. Where as long as Rivers does what he did last year or bounces back a little bit and is a little better than that, with an easy schedule, should be a prime contender for a playoff spot. Is there anything, and I've seen some of the numbers on what the extra playoff spot will do, but when you think about the AFC, is there anything that's going to change, you think, this year because of the extra playoff spot? I mean, let's is is it just, is it the year to be a dominant team in the AFC and it doesn't matter if, if you're, you know, if you, it, it, how much the buy changes because I think the AFC is going to be so competitive, obviously between uh, the Chiefs and then and then the Ravens and then obviously that second tier, which I think we would throw Indy and and uh, Pittsburgh and and those sort of teams. in. is there anything the extra playoff spot does you think to the competitive balance of of the conferences? I mean, here's the thing: if everything works out to the mean of our projections, like our average projection. We have two AFC teams very separated from the rest of the conference. Right, exactly. And that's Kansas City and Baltimore. Only one of them gets a bye. That means who gets that bye is, who gets that bye is hugely important. Those two teams could be equal in every way, and one of them gets the bye because of some random win against common opponents or something, and it just makes a colossal difference. Yeah, no, it's, it's going to be fascinating. I think because 
So many things are going to change competitively this season. I mean, between not having padded practice until late August, all this stuff, I think we probably haven't put enough focus on how big that buy is going to be. But hitting the ground running is probably going to be even more important than it is normally. All right. Is there a narrative around the league that is just totally wrong? That is just that we talk about, maybe we take it for granted, and whoops, it's actually just not true at all, Aaron? I don't know if it... It's something we talk about as football media, but it comes out in uh, responses to posts and responses to things I say on Twitter. And that is the idea that building an efficient team in the NFL is anti-labor. Oh, okay. Right. When we say running backs shouldn't get paid, right. sometimes the responses are like, well, you don't, you know, these guys work hard and they take all these hits and why shouldn't they get paid? And what do you have against the players? And the answer is we have nothing against the players. It's just every team is capped. There's a limited amount of money that you're allowed to spend on players and looking at efficiency and how teams can run the best, most efficient team suggests that that money should be played on different players than running backs. That's a mm -hmm. completely different argument than should the cap be higher? Should players get a larger proportion of the proceeds in the NFL, you know, what, what is it now? Like 50, 50, you know, should players get 55, right? It's a totally different question than, okay, here are the rules for building teams. How do you build the most efficient team? I don't know anybody in the analytics world who believes that we're trying to screw certain players out of their money. It's just, these are the rules and you want to build the most efficient team that wins the most. Yeah. You know, I think that's, that's been the biggest debate maybe in the past five years for me internally, just when you say someone doesn't deserve to get a second contract or whatever, what are you actually saying? And I think that unfortunately the 2011 CBA pushed out a lot of veterans, a lot. And that's the reason, you know, I think you guys did some pioneering research on the age factor and, and how age kept going down and down and down, especially on offense across the NFL after that CBA. I think 2016 was the year I wrote about that using some of your research and is talking to coaches about what was happening. Essentially, it, unless you were a, a, a almost not elite, but unless you were really, really good, you were not going to get a veteran contract in the NFL after 2015, which was the first year that, um, that, that those 2011 rookie contracts expired. And I think that there's just so much that goes on with that. But unfortunately, right now, teams are incentivized to have rookies and build around those rookies and then have only the best of the best on the roster. And I think that we're probably, unfortunately, going to see more of that if the cap goes down 50 to 60 to 70 million dollars next year. Um, but I think that instead of sort of debating whether or not it's pro labor or anti labor, in, as far as you know, saying how roster projection should go or how teams should manage their cap. I think the NFL needs to find a way and the NFLPA needs to find a way to get people paid um, in an efficient way. And, you know, maybe that's more back end incentives for rookies. Um, maybe that's a, a minimum where, you know, there is now a, a quote unquote veterans minimum where that, that can exist sort of almost outside the salary cap. That's how Nelson Algalore signed actually. But I think that there's mechanisms in which running backs can get paid, and that's up to the NFL and the NFLPA. But unfortunately, right now, it is really tough to be a running back. And it, yeah. there, there's so many cases that are, quite frankly, football tragedies where you see a guy who in his third year 
leads the NFL in yards per carrier. Looks like he's great. Then his fourth year, he he you know breaks his foot, and then he's just out of the league next year because nobody wants to sign a running back for for a veteran's contract. Um, I'll give you a good example of a guy who doesn't have a contract right now, Devontae Freeman. Um, I don't know how you do it because you've got to put running back money in the first contract in a way that's different from other positions. But the union's job is not to represent running backs. The union's job is to represent players at all positions. And so they're not going to fight for a specific position to be paid differently than other positions. But that's the only way to get running backs money that is equal to what their value to teams is. Yeah. I'm still wondering, because it hasn't happened yet, and in fact, college running backs are still obviously amazing because you look at all the, the great running backs who are young in this league right now, but it's just so strange to me that the pipeline hasn't dried up. And part of the reason, and I've talked to people in football about this, is that at youth, the youth level and the high school level and even the college level, the best athlete at running back can absolutely dominate. And so there's absolutely. an incentive for a coach to put them there. If you have an elite Division one level athlete who can play running back in high school, you stick him at running back and you win a state title, right? I mean, I remember somebody saying this about uh, Stan Van Gundy actually told me this years ago, and we were talking about the the basketball developmental system and how why at, at one point the American big men were not shooting threes. This was you know ten years ago. We're not shooting three pointers, and he said, well, it's because if you have a guy who's five inches taller than everybody else and you're in a high school coach, you're an AAU coach, you stick that guy under the basket and you let him dunk all the time. And so it's almost like that with running backs where it can all be explained by how the game is different at the lower levels. And so if you're a coach, you're not going to say, hey, the best long-term strategy for, for this kid is to play slot receiver or play cornerback uh, even. It's no, we're going to put him at running back and, and that's how the pipeline is, is still there. But unfortunately, once that gets to the NFL level, it's just not financially savvy. And it is one of the football questions, quite frankly, of our time to, to figure out. Um, all right. You spend a lot, and you've done this a lot over the past 14 years of this book, talking about the things we get wrong when we talk about football stats. And at the beginning of, of this book, um, you sort of out, outline some of that stuff, and, and, and it's always interesting to read. If you could make one change to how we talk about statistics in football, what, would you, what, what change would you make? Well, I mean, there's a difference, I think, between what change would I make towards how the general media talks about statistics and what change would I make to how statistical analysts talk about statistics. Right. The change I would make to the way that the general media talks about statistics is the same one that I would have made when I started in 2003 from the very beginning that I've been doing this, which is stop ranking teams based on total yardage, especially defense. It's just terrible. And they still do it on broadcasts. The fact is analytics has stretched a long way when it comes not only to front offices, but when it comes to beat reporters. But it has not stretched a long way when it comes to studio shows and when it comes to color commentating. So when you watch football on TV, you still get a lot of teams being ranked by total yardage at its terror. Yeah, I mean, that's I think that there's been some movement. I, Chris Collinsworth investing in Pro Football Focus was Obviously. was important to get to get that voice and that research onto Sunday Night Football, which is the, the, the highest rated show in television. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I still think that there's, it's going to take a while. It's going to take maybe a, another generation before that's accepted more in sort of the mainstream 
network uh, vocabulary, I guess you could say. All right, last one. Any guy breakout for 2020, who is it? Uh, I like, uh, we have a list we do in our book called the top 25 prospects, which is, uh, yes. we don't look at first and second rounds. We look at guys who are taken later in the, in the draft or undrafted free agents who haven't really done a lot yet, but we think will in the future. And our number one guy is, and I am hope I am pronouncing this somewhat close to right pr- pronouncing Ifiadi Odenigbo. Okay. From Minnesota, he is the replacement for Everson Griffin at the edge rusher position and had uh, four sacks over the last five games of last season with a forced fumble and a fumble recovery for a touchdown. And he's a, a really promising pass rusher on a team that really needs a pass rusher. Mm-hmm. I mean, Minnesota got hit by the salary cap demon big time this offseason. I think they're a well-run team and they've done a lot to um, – to overcome that, but it may take a year or two for them to fully see the fruits of all the young talent they have. But this is a guy who was drafted in 2017 and they may see the fruit of his talent now. Yeah, it's interesting because I think the Vikings are a really well-run team. I think that there are obviously some holes in that roster, but I actually like them more than most people who we had on over the past couple of months in this podcast. Where, what are your expectations for them in 2020, Aaron? Our numbers for Minnesota, we have the NFC North incredibly tight. All yes. four teams win the division 23% of the time, at least, in our simulations. So we have all four teams tightly clustered around 8-8. Eight and eight. Subjectively, I think Minnesota will do a little bit better than our projection system thinks because I do really think Zimmer is good at managing defense. Subjectively, I like Minnesota the best in that division. But objectively, we actually have them fourth out of the four teams. But like I said, really tight. The Bears. I cannot believe this. I cannot believe the, uh, the, that they're uh, and multiple people in multiple simulations have made the case for the Bears on this podcast over the past couple months. This is uh, truly Robert made Mason's the case point. for the Bears to win. We have is far. Uh, we have it actually with Detroit as the top team in mean wins because they have an easier schedule than Green Bay. Uh, but we have all four teams tightly around eight and eight. I mean, we have on the site right now. I posted a thing with our top 15 Super Bowl possibility teams, and there are no NFC North teams in there. So we have the whole division being mediocre. I can't wait to tell Mays about this. This is uh, the, the, mediocrity is uh, def- the sweetest words in the language is uh, default, right? That was the Homer Simpson line. Yes. Uh, Chicago <laughs> Bears, contenders by default. Aaron, tell us what you're doing with United Way. I think it's cool that you guys are partnering with them. Absolutely. So every time you purchase Football Outsiders Almanac or you buy a subscription to our new FO Plus premium product, we're going to donate uh, proceeds to the United Way Worldwide's COVID-19 Community Response and Recovery Fund that get distributed across United Way networks based on need, emergency food and shelter, all kinds of important things. So you are not only helping us by buying this book, You are helping a lot of people. You are helping yourself learn about the 2020 NFL season, uh, but you're also helping people with COVID-19. Aaron, thanks so much, man. This has been the Ringer NFL Show and Learner Podcast Network.